The Adventures of Indiana Jim, Episode 64, for October 2nd, 2021. Coming to you not exactly live from... The Cliffs of Insanity! Where life is an adventure. And if adventure has a podcast, it must be Indiana Jim. Don't tell me you've never heard of me. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. I have entertained in all the courts of Europe and speak a ready wit in their every tongue. I told you I was famous. And now, that intrepid archgeekologist, Indiana Jim. You have chosen wisely. Well, I told you I would be back sooner rather than later, and it is sooner rather than as late as it has been. Although I did plan on coming back to the microphone. Uh, a couple weeks ago, but for various and sundry reasons, you know how squirrel syndrome is, and well, you know it's kind of been the bane of my existence and my uh, my whole presence as a podcaster has sort of been this <laughs> squirrel syndrome. But anyway, I'm back and uh, just finally felt like I, you know, had enough motivation to uh well do it you know other other saturdays have i've let other things kind of take precedence and get in the way but uh here i am so i guess for this episode i wanted to talk about a, a couple things really two of my favorite things are getting new adaptations and one of those favorite things is a longtime favorite thing, and that is the Wheel of Time TV series is finally coming to fruition. And it will begin airing this November, which is, is crazy to think of. Uh, but uh, I was going to talk a little bit about my experience with the Wheel of Time. And then Babylon 5, of all things, is sort of getting a... And maybe a reboot. I guess we can call it a reimagining. Um, and it's being helmed by the guy who created it. So that's that's a good thing. Well, I'll get into that in a little bit. So I guess we'll just uh, jump right in. And uh, so when I first uh, read The Wheel of Time, picked up the Eye of the World actually in the summer of 2002 and my wife and I actually went to see John Williams conducting the Cleveland Symphony with uh, with the well, with the Cleveland Symphony really Jim <laughs> we're going to watch him conduct the Cleveland Symphony at the Blossom Center in Cuyahoga Falls. I don't even know how to say that. Cuyahoga? Cuyahoga Falls. Yeah, there we go. And we had gone to the mall nearby, um, which is the Beachwood Place Mall. I don't know if that was what it was called in 2002, but that's what it is now. And there was a Walden Books in there. And this, you know, Obviously, this is a long time ago. This is nearly 20 years ago. So Walden Books and B. Dalton used to be a thing in the malls, and now they're not. There might be one, you know, there might be a Walden Books like the last blockbuster somewhere, but who knows? I don't know where. 
anyway, uh, my wife was uh, great with child because this was in the summer and he was born in August. So this was like July. This was this was coming up on it. And incidentally, that's my son who is named Towner after John Towner Williams. And you know he actually got to hear John Williams' music in utero and would be a really nice story if he wasn't such a punk. But anyway, uh, he's uh, 19 now. <laughs> so um, I actually I started reading Eye of the World in the hotel room um, that weekend. And so over the course of the year, I read through all of the available books in paperback. And that was up to um, 2003 when Crossroads of Twilight came out. And then after, let's see, after finishing Crossroads of Twilight, we had to wait for Knife of Dreams to come out, which was 2005. And so it may have taken me, I, I may have picked up Crossroads of Twilight later, um, but you know everything uh, one through nine had already come out, and then um, I think I may not have. I didn't have to wait for Crossroads of Twilight. It was like pretty shortly it came out, and then had to wait for Knife of Dreams, uh, which was the last full book that Robert Jordan wrote before he died. And in that gap um, between... Now, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I, I believe I had read The Lord of the Rings in, yeah, 2001. I had read The Lord of the Rings. Um, may have been 2000, 2001. I don't know. It was, it was when the film was coming out and they had actually published the versions with the movie pictures on the back of it uh, and the, the ring wraith on the cover from the movie. So I had actually read that version, the whole big version, not the individual little books. Because, of course, Tolkien written, wrote it, written it? Tolkien written it. Uh, he wrote it as one complete volume, and then it was split into three at publication. Mostly because of binding. They couldn't get that many pages into one volume at the time, with the binding technology being what it was, and so they released them in, in three installments. So, um, now you talk about in media res, the way two towers begins, the first line is Aragorn sped on up the hill. Like it's right in the middle of the scene. So that's great. Anyway. Um, and, and talk about your all time cliffhangers. So not quite as good as a cliffhanger between <laughs> two towers and return of the king. Anywho. So read the Lord of the Rings for the first time, read it all the way through in in 2001 or 2000, whenever it was. Um, it probably was... Because I feel like... Was Two Towers in 02, I think? Yeah. So, anyway, right around that time, I had read Tolkien. Uh, and then, after reading it, I was like, I want to start a long series. I was just fascinated with the idea of, of, of a series of books that spanned a vast amount of time. And at the time, the series available were um, 
the Song of Ice and Fire, I think, was at four books at that point. Maybe. Think about that. 19 years, and we're only up to six. Like, I, come on, George. Um, the song of, There was Song of Ice and Fire. May have only been three, but I think it was four. I can't remember. Um, there was Terry Goodkind's Sword of Truth, which had several books out. And there was Robert Jordan with his books. And of course there was Raymond Feist and there was David Eddings and there was these there were these fantasy authors that had these long series, but not one that was so many books for one group of characters. And just the fact it's sheer length, it's sheer scope appealed to me. So I tried Good Kind up to the I don't know, was it the second book or third book? And I, and I just got turned off by the the sadomasochist uh, dominatrix business in there. It's just like, really? Um, I, I felt like somebody was compensating for something uh, in that. <laughs> uh, let's see. And of course, I'd read some Feist, read some Eddings. I've been, I had been reading the Star Wars EU novels um, through um, many, many years. Um, and I really liked Barbara Hambly, I like Mercedes Lackey as far as fantasy writers, but Jordan was the pinnacle of the genre. No one had done, uh, other than Goodkind, a densely threaded narrative over so long a series. And I had tried my hand a little with writing in college, and I've talked about this before. I did some work on a story my cousin was working on, but I knew very little about what I was doing, but I just kind of had a natural story sense. And then... I did some narrative role play stuff in the early chat rooms there in the late 90s and sort of created this milieu and a character that exists today in my Blade Wielder novel, Blade Wielder's novel, First Blade, which I am working on the sequel. So after reading through some of that and reading through The Lord of the Rings, it was about that time, 03, 04, when I decided, you know, hey, I could really, um, I could probably do this. I think I can do this writing thing. So I piddled away at a very ambitious uh, and very derivative fantasy quest that borrowed liberally both from Tolkien and Jordan, as you do when you like fantasy and you think you can write. <laughs> and it was about that time, 04, 05, where uh, I discovered the Dragon Page. Uh, some of you are familiar with that. Uh, at the time, it was the it was a weekend radio show in Phoenix, hosted by Michael Armenengay and Steve Terra. and they had clips on the website, and you had to go to the website to download the clip to listen to their interviews with the authors. And Robert Jordan was in there. And then we had T. Morris and Scott Sigler and Mark Jeffrey and Matthew Wayne Selznick and all the audiobook novel stuff got started. And I finally, and it was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I needed to get it together because these guys are, look at what these guys are doing. Maybe I can do that too. And, you know, I never did get around to doing um, an audiobook, but I did do uh, the thesis of fantasy uh, thing with you know all the all stars of podcasting including you know Christiana Ellis and Rich Siegfried and uh, Jack Mangan uh, was the lead in that and then of course I did the Star Wars audio drama in 2008 um, and I, I had started writing seriously I had started taking the writing seriously as in this is something I can do uh, 
And a lot of that was inspired by T and Scott and less to a lesser extent, Mark Jeffrey and, and Matthew Wayne Selznick. And of course, J.C. Hutchins was in there too. So, and then of course I got squirrel syndrome took over and I did the, I started imagining this, this Star Wars audio drama because I was really listening to a lot of those and I was into that community with, you know, Nathan Butler and, and the people that were kind of involved in that circle at StarWarsFanWorks.com. And shout out to Christopher Walker, who was also a part of that, Joe Harrison, uh, some of these people you've never heard of, but were big um, in that Star Wars fan audio community. And then, of course, I was nominated for a Parsec. I was a finalist for a Parsec, which uh, just was so validating and just is just awesome. Um, and, and I loved kind of having that experience. I didn't go to get to go to Dragon Con, but it was really nice to be honored that way. And I felt for, you know, at the time to be considered in the top five was just, that's awesome. It was great. And um, while the script isn't really, you know, that great, it was just a lot of fun. And it was very pulpy and just sort of, I just sort of followed where it went and just tried to have fun with it. And then I got to meet Robert Jordan, sort of meet him. Um, he was at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington. Uh, and this was a while before he got his d diagnosis. He was still hale and healthy, and he was teaching people how to pronounce the crazy names. And he gave a really nice talk that I can't remember, but it was an uh, experience that I just I remember and I treasure, and I remember seeing him up close. And um, So, you know, now I'm taking the writing seriously as this is something that I wish to do for a living. And maybe not as seriously as someone with... That, uh, that has an amazing self-discipline, uh, but I've had to sort of grow into the role, and I think I'm at a point craft-wise now where it matters um, to me, where it's like, this is important. Um, so, and this is something I had tweeted about uh, back in September, um, and I just, so much of what I do is thanks to the legacy that Mr. James Oliver Rigney a.k.a. Robert Jordan, uh, left behind. And I wish he was still here to make stuff up for money. Now, about the series. Um, I'm really looking forward to the Wheel of Time series. And any time I play the trailer, like, I'm just... It just it does something inside me where I'm just super excited. Um, just sort of a giddy kind of excitement. This is the only way I can put it. Now, do you do you have your concerns with adaptation? Yes. And going into this kind of thing, you have to understand that on one side you have the books, on the other side you have the show. And the show is going to necessarily leave some stuff out. Now, a, a prolonged series can do a whole lot better than a movie. You couldn't take the eye of the world and put it into a two-hour film. Um, unless you really got rid of some stuff. And you'd have to get rid of Matt and Perrin and just keep Rand. Or you'd have to severely sideline Matt and Perrin. You'd have to make them contributing characters for Rand to be the main character. And in a series, in a TV series, you're able to sort of tease out more of those narratives, have more than one protagonist, and... 
it necessitates taking a long time to tell because you have to build in the appropriate uh, sympathy elements for each character to drive their own individual stories. And the Wheel of Time has a lot of characters. You've got Rand and Matt and Perrin and Egwene and Nynaeve and Lan and Moiraine and all of these characters that sort of have these prolonged narratives. But some of these some of these characters won't be able to have the same hero narrative to the same extent that they do in the books. And so necessarily there's some going to be some characters that are going to be sidelined a little bit. I feel like the important characters in here are going to be Rand. You're going to have Egwene. Egwene is going to take a big role. I think But I think they, when you look at the trailer, they really put a lot of emphasis on Egwene um, and the foreshadowing of, of what she becomes later on in the series. And not just, you know, Rand. They didn't foreshadow a lot of Rand. They sort of said, here's our three boys, and here's this girl that's really important. And yes, it's true, Egwene is extremely important, though she's not the main character of the series. She um, She's very important to how the series plays out. And, and so is Nynaeve and, and all of these characters. So I think you're going to have the characters that we saw in the trailer are going to be your main characters through the series. Rand, Matt, Perrin, Egwene, Nynaeve, Lan, and Moiraine. That's probably it. That's about as many as you can probably take <laughs> in a series. Uh, that's my guess. And I think Moiraine and Lan are going to sort of be minor heroic characters. We're going to see a little bit of um, Moiraine navigating the politics of the White Tower. I think you're going to see a little bit about Lan um, as the lost king of Malkir. You know, Malkir, I don't even know how to say it. Um, but primarily you're going to have the, the folks from Two Rivers. Matt, Perrin, Rand, Egwene, Nynaeve. Those are going to be like your five core with the other two kind of hanging on. Um, there's other characters that aren't probably going to play as major a role. I don't think Tom Marilyn is going to be playing as much of a role as he did in the books. And, and in the books, he's, he doesn't really have a hero's narrative. He, he is sort of the mentor character in there, sort of the Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of person. Um, I don't think you're going to see, and, and maybe this will change when we get to season two or three or whatever it is, um, Elaine and her brother, uh, uh, what was his name? I don't even remember. Anyway, he becomes, you know, the, the white cloak. He becomes a white cloak um, in the series. That doesn't really spoil much. It's just part of the deal. Um, if you've not read of Wheel of Red Wheel of Time by this time, by the time he shows up, you're going to forget and you're going to go, oh, oh yeah, that was what he was talking about. Like no big deal. Anyway, so that's that's what I think is going to happen. You're going to have a reduction in sort of how many people get extended narratives within the show. The other thing is now this is, you know, this is being uh, the the showrunner is a fan of the series, and you you sort of have to be a fan of the series if you're going to be a showrunner on an adaptation for a series. But I think it's a little bit different than the way Peter Jackson was a fan of Tolkien, um, where he read Tolkien and went, "Oh, this would make a great movie," you know. Rafe Judkins can't, comes at it from this is a beloved book series 
and how do we do right by this? And I think Harriet um, probably negotiated enough of a contributor's role that as a, a consultancy where she's going to help sort of guide things the way they should go. By the look of things, um, it looks like it's going to represent the property well. But again, there's going to be some shortcuts taken, and, and the characters are aged up a little. So um, these characters that seemed like little kids, you know, almost like 13, 14, or more like 17, 18 now. Um, so kind of a kind of a big difference in approach, I think. Um, and so, again, the important thing is to remember that these are not the books, that the books are the books, the show is the show, and the show is simply um, sort of a, kind of a reimagining without changing, you know, all the, the major, major details. And enough details will probably change that some fans are going to go, oh, I don't like this, this isn't, you know, the way it's supposed to be, but, you know, you have to make sacrifices. And especially... You know, there are different things you have to do in screenwriting that you don't do when you're writing a novel. There's certain beats you have to hit when writing television that you don't hit the same with with a novel. So am I concerned that there's going to be large creative liberties taken? No, I kind of expect large liberties to be taken. Now, the important part is, where do they decide to deviate and where do they stay faithful? And that remains to be seen. We're not going to know until they actually do it. But I, I'm excited, and I'm excited about it coming in November. Um, and, and not only do we get that, I think uh, the next season of The Expanse is coming out soon, the last season of Expanse. Uh, Book of Boba Fett, we learned, is coming out in December. Um, on the heels of that will be Kenobi and Andor for Star Wars fans. Um, and then we've got Amazon's, um, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, Silmarillion uh, series. Which, that's something I need to mention because I just said it. Silmarillion. It's not pronounced Silmarillion like we say million. Um, it, it, that's not how it's supposed to be pronounced, and I just figured this out. It's sort of like when you say Necronomicon, the Silmarillion. It's it's about the Silmarils, you know... We, Again, it's it's not a number. We don't say Silmarillion, Silmarillion, and and I, of course, when you've studied Tolkien and you've studied his, you you know, you read his pronunciation guide and took it seriously, like I do because I'm a nerd, then you understand exactly where that comes from. The Silmarils, you actually say Silmaril if you're pronouncing it in Elvish fashion, not Silmaril, like uh, lazy English Americans. Um, so it's not Silmarillion, it's Silmarillion. It's exactly, as you know, if you were Elvish and you were pronouncing it, that's how you would say it, probably. Um, anyway, uh, that's just that's just a, an aside from a nerd. So anyway, uh, Wheel of Time, really looking forward to it. The Lord of the Rings Middle Earth series, really looking forward to it. Um Man, there's just so much good content coming out that I'm just really excited about. Next story is J. Michael Straczynski announced that he's reached an agreement with the CW to produce, to begin producing a pilot for a updated version 
of the Babylon 5 TV series. Now, I know for some people this is sacred, okay? And if it was anybody else going, hey, we got the rights for Babylon 5, we're going to redo it, and, you know, JMS is going to be a consultant, eh, uh, I wouldn't like it as much. But the fact that J. Michael Straczynski is writing and showrunning again, basically taking the same role, um, that really... Um, that really gives me a lot of hope for what this is going to be. And I'm just bringing up his Twitter profile. Um, and, and a lot of the things that he understands about creating television or a lot of the arrangements that he's made, a lot of the things that he's said about it, and, and we'll sort of, I'll sort of go over it. You know, if you're into Babylon 5, you've probably already read all his tweets about it. But, um, he says, the network understands the uniqueness of Babylon 5 and is giving me a great deal of latitude with the storytelling. As noted in the announcement, this is a reboot from the ground up rather than a continuation for several reasons. So that's, number one, it's a reboot from the ground up, okay? Not a continuation, not a sequel. Uh, Heraclitus, I don't even know how to say it, Heraclitus wrote, <laughs> you cannot step in the same river twice for the river has changed and you have changed. In the years since Babylon 5, I've done a ton of other TV shows and movies, adding an equal number of tools to my toolbox, all of which I can bring to bear on one singular question. If I were creating Babylon 5 today for the first time, knowing what I know now as a writer, what would it look like? How would it use all the storytelling tools and technological resources available in 2021 that were not on hand then? Now, I've seen people react to this idea with, oh, wouldn't you rather do new ideas and this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, to a point, I guess, you know, sure. But, you know, the way as a writer to be able to reapproach it with through the lens of something like Babylon 5, uh, he says, how can it be used to reflect the world in which we live and the questions we are asking and confronting every day? Fans regularly point out how prescient the show was and is of our current world, it would be fun to take a shot at looking further down the road. So we will not be retelling the same story in the same way because of what Heraclitus said about the river. There would be no fun and no surprises. Better to go the way of Westworld or Battlestar Galactica where you take the original elements that are evergreen and put them in a blender with a ton of new, challenging ideas to create something fresh yet familiar. To those asking why not just do a continuation for a network series like this, it can't be done because over half our cast are still stubbornly on the other side of the rim. Um, I'm just kind of looking through the rest of what he says. He talks about Babylon 5 being, you know, innovative. Um, I hope to create additional new forms of storytelling that will further push the television medium to the edge of what's possible. Um... So, here's the other thing. Straczynski's kind of been, you know, he, he sort of reinvented the serial form for TV series back in the 90s. It, it was unheard of. Uh, everything was episodic. And this was this overarching story. And he had this whole five-year arc planned out. And he was the first to do that. And 
you know, Deep Space Nine was coming out at the same time, largely because somebody at Paramount had read his or had seen his pitch and went, mm, let's do that with Star Trek. So <laughs> the whole idea was basically um, swiped from Straczynski, but both shows did a good job with it. And they went different directions and did their own thing, and, and that's fine. Um, you know, Deep Space Nine had the benefit of being a Paramount show, so it was distributed to larger audiences than um, the whoever the distributor was for <laughs> for Babylon Five at the time. Um, and I think he's sort of the guy that does the thing that is unheard of. So after you know serial television. Oh, you know, a TV writer can't do comic books, and he went and did wonderful series of of Thor and Superman, both DC and Marvel. Wrote comics for both of them. And he, suddenly, suddenly, he's a comic book writer. It's like, oh, you know, comic book writers don't do feature films. And then he wrote the script to Changeling, first draft, picked up by uh, Clint Eastwood's company. Well, first Ron Howard, Imagine Entertainment, picked it up, first draft, picked it up. Um, and then it, it got moved, moved along to Clint Eastwood who worked with Angelina Jolie and brought that story to life. And he was nominated for an Oscar, you know, so, or what was it Oscar or Golden Globe? I can't remember. He was, I don't know. He, he was recognized, um, for doing a great job. And it was funny. He's, he was asked, um, this is funny how television and movies don't cross streams. And he would, he would meet people. And they would ask him, you know, is, you know, this is really great for your, your first screenplay. Have you ever written anything else? <laughs> and he was the showrunner and writer for Babylon 5. Um, so he did feature films. And then, you know, feature film writers, they, A, they don't go back to TV. And B, you know, <laughs> it's number one. So he's going back to TV. And he's, you know, the whole idea of nobody reboots Reboots, you know, are worse than the original. That's number one. Number two, you can't reboot a beloved cult classic like Babylon 5, or with a cult following. And, you know, the same showrunner never gets to rerun his own show. Like, there's so many firsts. And and he's the guy that defies expectations. He's the guy that, you know, after he did Changeling, feature film writer... They don't become novelists, and then, you know, Together We Will Go is highly acclaimed. He's got another novel coming out, and then he's going back to TV. Like, Straczynski's the guy that defies expectations every time he does something. And every time he does something, he does it well. He's not like Joss Whedon, who has a hit, then a dud, then a hit, then a dud, then a hit, then a dud, then a... misogynistic scandal like (laughs) you don't get that out of Straczynski he's just the solid guy who kind of goes from this thing to this thing to this thing to this thing because that's what he takes the available path and I'm just endlessly impressed with the way he accomplishes things if you've never read Becoming Superman you really have to read that book it's insane what what the guy went through in his upbringing his life just the abusive upbringing that he had and how he's triumphed over that. And I know I I got skeptics in my audience and I know I got believers in my audience. 
And if ever there was a proof text for the existence of a god, it would be the life of J. Michael Straczynski, and he can't see it. And there's so many people that are fans of his, hi, Dan Sawyer, who can't see it. And, you know, God bless you, or not, depending on your personal view there. But, and I told Dan, I said, that's, if it, if the, if anything is a proof text for the existence of God, it's his life. For the, the way that things have turned out so well for him and the way he's overcome so much um, and, and just the way that doors have opened is just remarkable. He's just had a remarkable life. And so anyway, that's, that's just my, my thought on that. Um, take it for what you want to take it for. So I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes because I'm just now finishing Babylon 5. I just started watching it this year. Because um, it's been on HBO Max, and I was always curious, but you know, I never really did start it. And then just dove in, and a lot of it has been at the behest of Dan Sawyer. Um, and then I read his his book about you know how to become a writer and stay a writer. I read Becoming Superman. Well, listened. Did I read it or listen to it? Can't remember. Anyway, um, Becoming Superman was just amazing, incredible, the experiences that he's had. Um, so, looking forward to that. So we got Wheel of Time, we got Babylon 5 coming back. Um, I'm going to do a process episode, a writing crusade episode soon, where we talk about how to build, um, how to build character sympathy, because it's really interesting to me the way that feature film scripts and, and novels, um, the, the techniques that we can use to create sympathy for our characters. And there's a lot of craft things that I'm d discovering and really realizing what craft is. When I read Eric Edson's book, um, wasn't The Art of Storytelling, what's it called? Is it called The Art of Storytelling? Well, see, now i got to look that up. I'm going to go to hoopladigital.com. Check with your local library, by the way, and see what e-reader apps they have, uh, if they have any e-reader apps connected. Um, if they do, there's a lot of, there's a few good library apps that are out there. Uh, let's see, recently borrowed segment section, uh, The Story Solution by Eric Edson. And understanding the nuts, sorry, the nuts and bolts of storytelling. Um how a feature film lines up the segments and puts them together and when it hits certain story beats. Um, it's almost an exact science um, as far as, you know, how they're structured. The, the thing is, a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, that's a paint-by-numbers approach. You just plug this in and plug this in and plug this in. But no, you have to first write it well you have to connect things logically you have to connect them artistically there's a lot of artistry inside the structure but if you don't follow the structure you lose the psychological pattern that makes the audience respond the way you want them to and so understanding that when you build a chair, there's craft and there's artistry. When you build a guitar, there's craft and there's artistry. Craft is how you put the thing together. Art is what it looks like when you're done. Um, art is what it means when you make it, what it means to you. Um, 
the art is what you're trying to say. How you say it is the craft. So the idea of craft being how do you build this thing? What are the steps to building this thing and making it work? How do you, you know, if you're building a building, if you're building an arch, you have to know the geometry of how that arch is going to stay together or else it's going to fall down. So if you don't understand the geometry of the story that you're telling, it's going to fall down. Some of us do this on instinct and are skilled at doing it instinctively. But it's a skill that can be learned and you can learn to do it better. And that's what that's the part of it that's called craft. And so in the craft, I'm trying to figure out what are the nuts and bolts. Show me the process. Show me what elements are in there. And that's really intriguing. Um, and, and I don't know if there's a breakdown. There's a lot of different breakdowns of how to plot a novel. But I don't know that there's any as good as the story solution. The only other one I can think of is the complete plan to novel writing by Evan Marshall. Uh, the Marshall Plan for Novel Writing. And that was really helpful in helping me understand the structure, understanding that you have um, an action and a reaction, that one scene follows the other, that you have so many scenes for each character that make up the length of this novel. But really kind of just helped me get the structure in my head um, and understand how it works. And now I'm learning even more, studying screenplay structure. Um, and also, I'll, I'll also mention the idea, the seven elements of a viable story for screen, stage, or fiction by Eric Bork, B-O-R-K, E-R-I-K, B-O-R-K, Eric Bork. That's the phone ringing. Um, that was also very helpful in being able to understand what things to put together to make a compelling idea, what, what ingredients need to be there. So anyway, next time I think we'll talk about the uh, elements of, of character sympathy. I think there's a lot of things in there that can sort of help you really change what you're doing with your characters and understand how to make that character work for people. Uh, so I'll talk about that maybe next time. And uh, I think I think 38 minutes. I think that's probably going to do it. Uh, I do want to mention if you go to my Twitter profile at Indiana Jim. Uh, I have made my writing playlist public. So I need to make this window bigger so I can see what's what. There's profile. And there's lists. Uh, yes, yeah, so my writing list is now public. Uh, there's 18 different people on there. What I've done is in researching for MFA programs um, plus other writers that I've had on there for a while, um, I've found some good resources, some good accounts that you can follow. And not all of them are uh, spec fic. In fact, a lot of them aren't. But uh, Straczynski's on there. Uh, Matt Bell, who is one of the professors at Arizona State, which is one of the programs I'm looking at, he's in there. Uh, what else have we got? Oh, you know what? I just realized that both no that wasn't that wasn't routing in there was it oh my goodness i hope my other mic wasn't routing in there so i have my headset mic i don't know it's weird whatever <laughs> please forgive the uh behind the scenes diversion there but uh, matt bell that's a really useful account to be following um let's see who else is in here writing list 18 members let's see uh, the MFA Writers Podcast, 
Jared McCormick, Sage Hayden, Sage Hayden from the Just Right YouTube channel. He has a lot of good videos on, on the Just Right um, YouTube channel. The Center for Science Fiction, so the Gun Center for the Study of Science Fiction is in there. Like I said, J. Michael Straczynski, Lindsay Baroker, um, and there's some others that I need to get in that list. But if you want a list uh, of some good writers to follow, uh, please go do that. Please go subscribe or follow my writing um, list on Twitter, which has just become public. I've just made it public. So anyway, that's that. If you want to get... I don't know. What are you doing? That's not what I want. I want this one. Yes. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate you being here. It's very nice of you to pay attention to me. Email me at indianagympodcasts at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at indianagym. Get in touch with me. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Adventures of Indiana Jim, a production of Visionary Creative Works. Visit adventuresofindianajim.net and join the adventure.